Hello and welcome to Very British Futures, the podcast that each episode takes a look at a British sci-fi show from the archives. This time we're heading north to a remote Scottish island where something inhuman is preying on the animals and inhabitants, something they call the Nightmare Man. Shown only once in the summer of 1981, this BBC sci-fi horror hybrid has nevertheless built up a cult following in the years since. As ever, I have to warn you, there will be spoilers. Joining me to walk through the fog are my friends Ian Taylor and John Isles. Ian Taylor is a writer who's contributed to many magazines about cult movies and television, and recently published All Sorts of Things Might Happen, the films of Jenny Agatha. John Isles has written short stories for Big Finish and acted in and directed award-winning short films with Westlake Films. So, we'll turn turning back to The Nightmare Man. In 1978, David Wiltshire, a dentist with a sideline as a novelist, sold a sci-fi horror novel called Child of Vodianoi to the publisher Robert Hale Limited. Then, in 1980, BBC producer Ron Craddock was asked to provide a thriller in four half-hour episodes to be shown at 8.20pm on a weekday evening. He considered several recently published novels and eventually settled on Child of Vodianoi. The adaptation was handed to Robert Holmes, an obvious choice given his association with Doctor Who at a time when it had been pushing tea-time gothic about as far as it could go. Director Douglas Canfield also had strong Doctor Who connections and had built up a reputation for delivering atmospheric action dramas that belied their often modest budgets. The Nightmare Man starred James Warwick, Celia Imrie, Maurice Reeves, Jonathan Newth and James Cosmo. The programme was eventually released on DVD in 2005, accompanied by an exhaustive booklet of viewing notes by TV historian Andrew Pixley, whose work I am once again indebted to for this episode. I'd also like to recommend the excellent online article by Tristan Sargent, which provided some interesting extra influences. So, Ian, could you sum up the premise of The Nightmare Man for us? Yes, indeed. I'd be delighted. So the, the story is set on a fictional uh, Scottish island called Inverdee, a remote place. Uh, and the hero of the piece is a dentist, of course, as it would be. <laughs> um, and his girlfriend, uh, she works in the local post office, but is also a cartographer. And we first get to meet them. Uh, we see a little bit of romance, and then our dentist hero heads off to the local golf course, at which point he discovers a horribly mutilated body. And very soon, the island is gripped in a fair bit of terror. There seems to be a psychopathic killer with bestial tendencies preying on the islanders. Also on the island, there's a mysterious... Uh, army major who seems to know a little bit more than he should do about what's going on. 
And as the story unfolds, the police and the army officer, the dentist and his cartographer girlfriend all muck in together to try and track down the killer, uh, which, of course, turns out to be something rather unexpected. In the book, I believe, things seem to get revealed a little bit sooner, but uh, it's left as a nice twist. We don't quite know what's going on, but we do find that a mysterious submarine a one-man submarine has washed up on the shore and it turns out that the bestial killer has come out of this submarine it's all linked in to the cold war radiation poisoning cybernetic engineering it proves to be very very atmospheric with lots of fog rolling in lots of point of view camera shots with a red tinge well our first question is is when did you first hear about the Nightmare Man? I wonder if we could start with John. I I first heard about it in the pages of either TV Zone or DWB around the 90s. I remember reading about it in a kind of... I think TV Zone used to be TV flashback articles and so it just kind of examined the series of these classics that no one has seen for ages uh, and have interviews of people involved. And it was just kind of revered as this great, little-remembered, never-repeated, never-released-on-video at the time series. And obviously, it had a good reputation and a pedigree with both uh, Douglas Canfield directing it and Robert Holmes adapting it. You know, it was kind of a, a, a sort of love child of Doctor Who and, and adult drama, I suppose. So I knew of its reputation when I eventually came to watch it because I... Because it was an unknown quantity, I never bought the DVD either when it came out. And so I didn't get to watch it until I was invited on to do this podcast. So thank you for giving me that push to watch it, Gareth. Um, and it, it lived up to expectations. I'll go into it a little bit later. But obviously I knew the twist from, from reading these articles over the years. Uh, so I tried to put myself in the place of forgetting that I knew that it was a, a human being, you know, cybernetically enhanced and gone mad from radiation poisoning. How about yourself, Ian? Well, this is one of those instances where I, I can proudly say uh, I was there at the time. Uh, 1981, I would have been 11 years old. Uh, and uh, I do remember watching watching the, the series with my mum. It's not really my mum's sort of thing. I don't know why no, she was watching it with me. Uh, I remember her once. I remember her once falling asleep in the cinema watching Warlords of Atlantis. So it's definitely not her sort of thing. Um, but I watched it at the time and um, I was a very imaginative child and I was naturally drawn to uh, horror, sci-fi, fantasy, lost world, dinosaurs. This was right up my street. I love Doctor Who and... Um, this just had a little bit of edge because it, it was that little bit more grown up. So I was I was delighted that it was on at a time a little bit earlier. I was able to watch it. As I say, I watched it with my mum and um, it stuck in my memory for a, a long time. And then I forgot about it. But maybe about eight years later, I was uh, browsing some secondhand bookshops in, um, in Manchester. And I found the TV time version of the novel for the princely sum of 40 pence which uh, I, I saved up for, I saved up for and then bought it. And um, as soon as the DVD came out, 
I bought that as well. It's uh, it's always been something that I've loved and um, uh, brilliant. So it, it's nice because sometimes I look back and uh, I didn't get the chance to watch all of the, the horror films at the cinema that I loved, the Hammer films and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. It's just really nice to say, yes, I was there when this was first screened and I saw it at the time. I'm not quite sure why I didn't. Well, I was of a similar age to uh, to you, Ian, at the time. And I don't know why I didn't watch this, because it would be, it would have been completely up my street at the time. I was well into watching any kind of science fiction that turned up on the television. Uh, I could only presume possibly I was steered away from it by my parents at the time. It was years later when I basically involved in in fandom and was at a friend's house and he would mention oh have you heard of this thing called the nightmare man and i was amazed that there was something written by robert holmes and directed by douglas canfield i'd never heard of and i remember him putting it putting on episode one and we watched a bit of it but it was it was kind of a general meeting chit chat it was sort of on in the background on the tv uh, and it wasn't until quite a few years later, in my tape trading days, that I, I managed to actually get hold of a, I think it was probably a third generation copy then, and was very, very impressed with it. So immediately, when I got a chance to get a, a proper DVD copy, picked it up then. And I think it's, it's very true, in fact, I'll uh, um, address this now. It does, to me, feel like it's the third part of a a trilogy that began in Doctor Who. I mean, this is entirely a, a very much, I am aware, a very fan perspective. I don't think Robert Holmes or Douglas Canfield probably felt the same. But there seems to be this trilogy, and they all have a similar atmosphere. It starts with the Tom Baker story, Terror of the Zygons, and then moves into another Tom Baker story, Seeds of the Seeds of Doom, and then you get the Nightmare Man, and they're three kind of fairly horrific sci-fi stories that all have a similar kind of chilly atmosphere to them. They have a similar, to me, have quite a similar feel. I, I don't know if you'd agree with me on that. Y- yes, I anticipated your question, Gareth, and <laughs> uh, I rewatched uh, the first two parts of Terror of the Zygons today. It does feel very similar. It's not as scary. Possibly just because you've got the Doctor there. and Yeah, so I think possibly because of the familiarity with the characters, it doesn't feel as adult or scary as Nightmare Man. And probably same for Seeds of Doom, but you're right, they're probably closest to horror that Doctor Who would get. Um, And obviously they have things in common. Another thing they have in common is in Nightmare Man, uh, David takes a cast of the the bite marks of the first victim and makes a cast... Mm. And the Doctor does the same with the Scarrison's bite mark from a piece of oil rig. Mm, that's true. And I'd love to know if Douglas Canfield did even consider any kind of connections or, or memories of his two Doctor Who stories when, when he was doing this. Because you're right, they're very similar. Even the scores are similar sounding. They're different composers, but they are of a similar sound, aren't they? They are quite similar. I must admit, I was a little bit surprised it wasn't Jeffrey Bergen who did the I music know. for the two for the two Doctor Who, but it's very much in his palette. 
on that. Did you see a, a Doctor Who connection there, uh, Ian? I think there definitely is, and I, I find it very difficult to believe that uh, Mr. Camfield didn't pick up on that as well. And maybe just, just relish being able to go a little bit further with it as well, I suppose. Uh, it's just more adult. It is. It absolutely is. But I, I notice it actually it does, does share an actor as well, doesn't it? Yes. Mm. Terror of the Zygons. Yeah. Tony Sybil, the, 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 who plays the Canadian photographer in The Nightmare Man, also crops up in Zygons. So, mm. um, yeah, there is that little thing. But... At the end of the day, if you uh, you have something monstrous preying on people in in a village, it's it's definitely got its Doctor Who elements of the time, hasn't it? And uh, I mean, mm, we might yeah. arguably say the best years of Doctor Who. <laughs> I, I was going to also mention. Do you remember when uh, John Nathan Turner took over as producer on Doctor Who? He he, he wanted a clean slate, and he he rejected Douglas Canfield's offer to come and direct something for him because. He originally, J&T offered him the five doctors and, and basically Canfield said, no, because you effectively sacked me back in 1980. And he held uh-huh. that against him all that time. Oh, I did, I did not know that story. And so Sorry. I wonder if this was his, his kind of attempt to do Doctor Who again, because, I mean, he did all kinds of things, didn't he? Police dramas. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know if he yeah, did any Play for Today very. type things. Uh, I know he did things like professionals. Um shoestring all, all kinds of mm-hmm. stuff you know you kind of you look at say shoestring and and just from the, the editing and the camera work and you just think this is gonna be a douglas canfield one so <laughs> you look at the end credits mm-hmm. douglas canfield but one thing i was gonna say about canfield is that everything that i've i've seen him direct there isn't a duff acting performance at all and, mm. and that just goes to show that actors can be good or bad depending on your director and it shows that he was good with actors as well as, as the technical side of it, with the camera work and the editing. He also got on well with actors, I believe, and would get a good performance. You know, you look at, oh, I've forgotten his name, John Chalice in mm-hmm. The Seeds of Doom. Yeah. Um, you, you know, you wouldn't think that was Boise from Only Fools and Horses, would you? He's so mm. different. Very different performance. I know, yes, he's a he's a right nasty piece of work in uh, in Caesar Doom. It's um, and it's unusual. Usually, uh, directors seem to go towards it's a kind of left brain, right brain thing. They seem to mm. you get those that are, are better on the technical side, and mm. or those that are, are better working with actors. But I think yeah, I think you're quite right. I think Douglas Canfield was a great all rounder. And and I also say that uh, he was a bit of a mentor figure, I think, for Graham Harper, because Graham Harper had a similar reputation as a Monday director of Doctor Who and some of the classic Doctor Who as well. And he was his production manager on on Doctor Who and on on this one as well. And the Nightmare Man, wasn't he? Mm. I did notice his name. Yeah. And I just wondered. Obviously, they worked together. He obviously nurtured Harper, I suppose. Now, as uh... You inferred a little earlier, Ian. You have an advantage over myself and John, <laughs> in that yeah, in that yeah. you have read you have read the novel. It's, it's got so, silly money on eBay right now, so um, I wasn't able to. So, yeah, sadly, it was beyond the podcast budget. I'm afraid to get hold of a copy. <laughs> but I would love to know what you think of it. First of all, as a novel, 
I well, it was well worth the forty p that I paid for it. I'll say that. One. <laughs> a bit of inflation. Yeah, just a bit. Yeah, I'll keep hold of that. I'm very glad to hear that. It's a good read. It, it is. It's very much of its time. It was uh, the late seventies when it was uh, first published, and uh, it certainly it belongs alongside those other writers of the time, um, James Herbert and. Sean Huxton, who might be starting round about then. Um, probably a, a step up from Guy M. Smith, who I nevertheless, <laughs> nevertheless enjoy reading now and again when I don't want to challenge myself too much. But it's a step mm. up from that. It, it's it's an entertaining book. Perhaps it seems a bit strange that the, the submarine is actually referred to in the very first chapter uh, before we even know what's going on. And it, it, it kind of is suggestive of, of what might be going on which is something they don't mm. do in the actual serial they they delay that for quite a while uh, mm. but otherwise yeah absolutely excellent there are very few changes to be honest right. i'm surprised he he didn't write more of that ilk it seems that he stopped after a short while david wiltshire and then mm. came back in the 2000s as a a romantic novel Mm. Yes, I uh, I agree that because he wrote this. There was a, an earlier story called the the with the possibly slightly problematic title of the Homo Saw, yeah, which uh, about uh, a sort of lizard man loose, and then a later one called Genesis Two. Both actually sound quite intriguing, and if I ever do see them in a secondhand bookshop, I will pick mm. I will pick them up. Uh, and I'm glad glad you mentioned um, Sean Hudson and James Herbert because when I when I read the synopsis in the viewing notes, it, it very much leapt out to me. It was very much part of that '70s British horror tradition, really, that uh, was kicked off by the Rats by James yeah. Herbert. Was that about '74, '75? The Rats. The Rats I think it was, was I believe. And I mean, in fact, I'm kind of surprised in a way that. At the time, that film and TV makers didn't exploit this little genre a bit more because they were very, I mean, they were some of those books were like international bestsellers, things like uh, Rats and uh, Sean Hudson's Spawn. And uh, like. I, I, have, have you seen the film of the rats, Gareth? Well, they were massive, <laughs> and it didn't we put mass over dogs' heads? I thought that that is part of the trouble. I mean, I mean, I've got a soft spot in a way for seventies films because they don't have all that CGI way of doing things. I quite like sometimes the ingenuity, even if it's mm. not always successful. I sometimes yes. quite like the ingenuity of makers. Didn't uh, they make a film based on Slugs, the Sean Hudson novel as well? Yes. I'm sure I've seen that. Yeah, dreadful. But I I, I can't remember much about it. I think I've heard it's dreadful. I, I think uh, Sean Hudson himself said it was. Uh, yes, it's very yes. kind that 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 people are providing work for actors with no brains. <laughs> so. I I read a review of the film, um, which included comments on the fact that they watched it at the premiere, and Sean Hudson was there, and uh, mm-hmm. he left the screening looking very pale indeed. Uh, <laughs> I don't think it was because he was scared. But, no. <laughs> the book is a little bit more extreme in some ways than than obviously what, what you could show on BBC at half past eight. Yeah, particularly with the uh the nature of the killer and what he does. That's right, yeah. Um 
the first victim, uh, the lady that's discovered on the uh, on the golf course, which she's in the TV version, of course, but we never get to find out very much, really. Uh, we see her disembarking from ferry, and then um, next time we see her, she's she's dead. Whereas the the first chapter of the book uh, does focus on her finding the sub, uh, going back to her own cottage, and um, finding this nightmare man uh, actually inside. Um, oh. And yeah, the, 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 there is sexual assault involved, um, which obviously mm. is not something that uh, we'd be putting on the BBC at 20 past eight. Uh, and as you said, it would give too much of a story away, wouldn't it, if it featured that? There'd be yeah, no it, mystery. It surprised me. It really surprised me. I think it indicates really that uh, a lot, a lot of the book is is about the tension of of this this creature stalking people. Um, in that way, it is less of a mystery than uh, than the actual TV serial was, which mm. I think works in the serial's favour. Yes, definitely. I mean, I can remember the first time I watched the Nightmare Man. There was a real intrigue in what. Uh, what this uh, assailant was, you know, we just saw that red tinged sort of like his point, red tinged point of view, and at this point, it could have it's like, is it a man? Is it a werewolf of some kind, or oh, this, a, uh, an alien? T- two things I was going to say about that. The, the first is the heavy breathing. Well, I said it's it's exactly the same noise our twelve-year-old son makes when he's pretending to be killed or squashed. You know, but, <laughs> Uh, uh, that's what she said when she was watching it with me for a little bit and the other thing was that it's interesting seeing a red tinge for that point of view rather than the traditional green which is in Doctor Who it's always green when it's a monster point of view isn't it Mm. I was thinking if they were doing that now they might have been tempted to add a few sort of in vision graphics and stuff it was meant to be this sort of cyborg oh yes but uh, I'm glad glad they didn't because it would probably have given it away or Uh, I, I have to say, the, I have to say that at the time, although you know I was fairly young, but at the time I had no idea where it was going. I had no idea what the creature was. So the, mm-hmm. the, the build-up of that mystery was was really was incredibly effective. Uh, I had yeah. no no idea at all. So uh, it was it was a fantastic twist for me at the age of eleven. Mm. I'll, I I love the idea uh, comes out about the nature, the sort of cybernetic nature mm. of the of this nightmare. I, I thought, what a brilliant idea! And I and I particularly like the idea that kind of half his brain is is still in the submarine. <laughs> I thought that was a, a a really good idea. In fact, to be honest, watching it back in my mind, that idea was so strong. I was really surprised watching it back for this podcast. Mm-hmm. That's actually not very much played upon in the actual episode. You get that bit that's mm. kind of just reported where the policeman says this submarine's been making funny sounds, sort of like yeah, uh, it's, it's sort of twitching. I think it would have. I must yes. admit here, I think it would have been better if we'd actually seen and heard that and somehow seen perhaps a few twitches. From the uh, from the submarine. Oh, I was going to say the submarine looks a bit cheap. Uh, that that that's my only negative, really. That the <laughs> just looks a little cheap. They do uh, manage to lift it very easily, don't they? It's mm. made a special alloy, Ian. 
it's a special <laughs> new alloy that makes it very light so it can maneuver better underwater. I know what you mean. It does look just a little bit too. I mean, I know it's meant to be a one man attack, so. Exactly. And, yeah, and it... I, I, I love being movies and I love Doctor Who, but it just lets it down slightly by looking cheap. Yeah, the design is basically okay. Mm. You could just do it being just a little bit bigger and it a little bit more of an engine. Yeah. Mm. You, you mentioned about the, the idea of doing more with the, the half a brain still being in, in the sub. But mm-hmm. I do think that was um, a definite plus point of the script that sometimes the, these almost throwaway lines, which when you stop to think about them, were, were quite grotesque. Um, mm-hmm. And it, it just sort of played on the imagination um, during the uh, when they were when they were having a look at that first body, and uh, I think uh, the dentist and the, um, the local doctor are talking, and uh, one of them just says, you mean he did all this with his bare hands? And, and we never get to actually really see it, but it, mm. you know, it just hints, same as the references to the headless body and things like that. Well, mm. well, yeah, you, you, you can see that when the body's on the slab and the cover's on her, that there's like one leg there and, and, and maybe an arm missing, and they just tell us that the head's missing. That's very effective without showing it too much gory detail. And then, as you say, they sort of find a head and stuff in back in a cottage, don't they? It's it does that sort of the dance of the slow reveal of the monster mm. really well over over these four episodes, and yeah, building up all this detail. I I, um, I love the um I love the the camera with a hair trigger, photographing mm. the attack because uh, you know it's clearly clearly signposted when 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 in in his first scene Simmons goes. Oh, by the way, do you know anyone that can repair a camera with a with a dodgy mm. trigger? But I thought, you know, when when he was going to be attacked, I thought that's clever. They're going to get pictures, aren't they? And you know, I thought that was really good when they did the little slideshow with the pictures and the tape that he was recording as well. I thought that was good. That showing bits of the the creature, the killer he's credited as, isn't he? Uh, in fact, I'm glad you've raised that because yeah, that, that I'm amazed actually I've not mentioned because it, it is one of my favourite bits. Is that sequence where they they watch the film when they watch mm. those photographs with the soundtrack accidentally recorded by the tape recorder mm, and very good. it's that is a, a brilliantly put together scene it's that, very unsettling uh, isn't it yeah and uh especially you know it ends on that final line from the doctor who says you know it sounds like he's he's laughing Mm. Uh, oh yeah it's a really chilling moment that one of pat gorman very few on-screen credits that is true uh pat gorman for people who don't know him was uh, a very busy character actor at uh, bbc television center in the especially in the in the 60s and 70s he, he did itv as well you know it wasn't just all oh, right this is the bbc he, he'd work for anybody for anything apparently he loved doing the background work and 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 wasn't interested in the limelight so it's quite good that he got a an on-screen credit i think he does a very effective sort of physical performance Mm. In, 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 the, in the bits we see of him. I, I love the whole attack on the Coast Guard yeah. sequence. Yeah. Uh, the moment when, it, when his arm smashes through the door and it's kind of groping around looking for the handle. Yeah. 
I, I think that that that's a lovely little moment. I I saw that uh, David Wiltshire was partly inspired by the film of the thing from another world, and uh, and obviously Douglas Canfield directed the Doctor Who story Seeds of Doom, which was influenced by the thing from another world as well. <laughs> you know, like the mm-hmm. bit when the Coast Guard goes out foolishly on his own to sort out their their, their gas supply for the heating. You know, he goes mm. into the boiler room, he puts the shotgun down, the creature's stalking him, you know, and he was setting fire to it because it doesn't doesn't the monster get set fire to him in the thing from another world? He you does, know? he does right. Yep. You, you know, mm. it, it's very good homage and a great imagery and again Camfield's camera work and editing and the music make effective use of that, don't they? Yes, I mean I mean burning monsters have been with us since Frankenstein, it's it's one of those yeah. great images. The uh, the bird, especially often the monster gets up again after that. Well, of, of course. Uh, in fact, I was going to say, speaking of, of the Coast Guards, uh, did you recognise two of them, Gareth or, or Ian? Yes, I I, I did. Uh, watching it again in retrospect is quite horrific. Seeing what's happening to uh, popular characters from other shows, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> Reg Hollis from the Bill, and uh, Dad from Bread. Yeah, Freddie Boswell. Yeah. Yeah, that was his name. I couldn't remember it. Ooh. In fact, I wonder how many of the cast were actually Scottish, because obviously Maurice Reeves was Scottish, and James Cosmo, we know, is Scottish. Um, I looked Celia Imrie up, and apparently her dad was Scottish. So, so I, I don't ah. know if anyone else was because it was filmed in Cornwall, you know that that well-known Scottish county. Yeah. <laughs> I must say, I think I think he does a good job. I mean, what, what do you think? What do you think of the kind of the the look of the show? It feels like an island because it, you know we're at set to we see the, we see the coast and everything. Uh, we see the ships arriving, you know, and enough Scottish cast or Scottish accents sell it. Uh, for me, you know, it does feel claustrophobic. Um, again, my only other negative, and I, I did, I really enjoyed the program. Some of the daylight fog effects, the filter and the fog machine, don't quite look right to me. They just kind of mm. look like you know fake fog, which it was. But apart from that, most of the time it looks very effective and and feels suitably. You know, they're, they're trapped on the island. They can't get police reinforcements. You know, the telephone line gets cut. They're stuck on this island, aren't they, because of the fog? You, you know, and this, this killer that Inspector Inskip calls a loony, you know, <laughs> lunatic killer. You know, it, it's very mm-hmm. it's very atmospheric. It's more it's more tense than the two Doctor Who stories that, that kind of, you know, Camfield did before. What, what, what do you feel about the production, Ian, the general sort of the look of it compared to other shows of the time? Think, I think it's a perfect example of how, if you, you're canny with the way you uh, you provide information, you don't need an awful lot of it to convince the audience of um, of the the location. As we say, it's a, you know we're immediately convinced that that it is a Scottish island, um, mm. and, and after that, after that, it's fine. The, the the fog is a little bit perhaps too enthusiastic and unnatural, <laughs> but but that's okay. And I can imagine people who actually lived at Port Isaac in Cornwall would be shouting the screen saying that's obviously not Scotland. Uh, I know. <laughs> I'm the same. 
I, I was the same um, when I was watching um, Russell T. Davis's It's a Sin recently, and uh, Bolton was standing in for London. I was going, mm-hmm. that's not London. But I think for absolutely <laughs> everybody else, everybody else who watches it, perfectly convincing. And I think it, yeah, it was very, very cleverly done. Oh, speaking mm. of a look, uh, I noticed it was all shot on, on outside broadcast video, which escaped that 70s, 80s problem of... of outside looking different to inside scenes yes. you know between the film and video because mm. when, when i was a child i noticed the difference when i was watching tv programs but i didn't know why my parents didn't know why it looked different either so you know when i became a doctor who fan and learned about the difference between film and video i knew straight away you know yeah. this childhood mystery was solved and in some ways mm-hmm. obviously the film looks better and is more prestigious but i think the video just about works on this because mm-hmm. you know it, it they weren't doing everything on video by this point, were they, at the BBC? So I believe no. they did all videos so they could do the handheld shots of the monster's point of view better using a video camera rather than uh-huh. a film. I think it, it helps when you're on location as well, doesn't it? Rather than trying to convince mm. that uh, a studio interior is actually an exterior. And that's true. It's all on location, isn't it? You're yeah. Right. yeah, so that does help, I think. Going on on location, it's it's funny. Uh, one of the podcasts I recorded before this, which is about Star Cops, and I was mm. complaining how flat everything looks on video uh, when mm. they whenever they do the Earth scenes, and that's n- absolutely not a problem with the Nightmare Man. It it feels very much steeped in atmosphere, and even though it's all on, as you say, OB mm. video, it actually doesn't to me doesn't look a million miles away from actual british horror films of the time particularly the ones that are set in actual modern day britain true i I think if you know the difference between film and video you'll notice it but you're right it doesn't look that bad it doesn't look cheaper and and like you're saying with star cops it's kind of down to your lighting isn't it and and whoever's in charge of that because i Mm. uh star cops was made 86 87 Chris Boucher, the creator, originally believed that exteriors were going to be done on film, but the producer decided to do them on video. You know, so again, it just shows that not all BBC productions were doing one medium only for, mm. for indoor and outdoor scenes, were they? Yeah, in fact, what it did make, what The Nightmare Man does make you think of, I don't know if you agree with this, it makes you think of Tygon films. Uh, this this somehow feels not a million miles away from the like of uh, Doomwatch and The Beast in the Cellar. Yeah, and which which of course Doomwatch had James Cosmo in it as well. So, oh, did uh, it? Yeah. Well, was that a remote like. Scottish island as well? It I was. Where the island it was. was. What with that and the Wicker Man, I'm surprised anybody visits any Scottish <laughs> islands. <to be> <laughs> Yeah, I, I, I don't think Summer Isle has a tourist information office. Or, or, <laughs> no. or if it does, no. I wouldn't go there. I don't think you can go wrong with, with Scottish islands or, or Cornish fishing villages or anything like that. They just, you know, the, the sea, the rocks, the harbour, seagulls screeching overhead and, and whatever moors mm. in the background. It's just it's, it's instant atmosphere. So, you know, uh, it's, yeah. uh, can't go wrong. Yeah. There's also the thing with... Um, uh, I forgot her name. Celia Emery's character, Fiona. Uh, yeah. There's that bit about she's kind of not married to the island, but but when when David talks about marrying her, you know, she says, "I don't think I could ever leave the island again." 
So, so like you said, I'll be marrying you and the island to suggest it's kind of close-knit community. Not that they're inbreds or anything, but just that <laughs> they, they've all got this attachment and it's of a place where us who live in towns or cities, we don't have that attachment in the same way. Uh, in fact, yes, I was going to um, ask you, Ian, about, because we're talking about the, the look of the show, but I think another, how do you feel about the sort of the community of this island and the way it's conjured up in the writing? I think that's very effective. Um, you, you do get the feeling that everybody knows each other and, mm. and it's, it's, it's quite refreshing that there aren't really mm. any great scandals or gossip there's no animosity it seems like a a happy island that people know each other they're able to make a little bit of fun of each other at times a little bit of banter and that's absolutely mm-hmm. fine it just it feels very real and, and what i particularly love is is the fact that uh, the character of fiona uh, although she works in the post office she's got this sideline of, of producing maps for the tourist trade and mm-hmm. they it gives her a very real reason to get stuck in and be involved in in the actual story itself, rather than just being the main guy's girlfriend. That, that mm. is good because the monster never even comes after her. So, so you're right; it's quite progressive her role. Yeah, that is actually that was a mild surprise to me again because I hadn't seen it in a long while. Watching it again, I was a little surprised that there's no scene, there's no, there isn't a bit where Fiona becomes the target of the killer you know which you'd be expecting normally mm-hmm. at, at, at the climax that would be the way you'd, you'd go with it it doesn't happen and i like this little community it's a place where you know deaths matter you know every, every death it's a in some ways it's a relatively low body count compared to some horror films mm. but each of those deaths is really it is felt and noticed in this community even though they are relative outsiders yeah, I, I I like the sort of humour in the, the the gossiping ladies of the island discussing mm. you know, what the police are up to and, and and everything. In fact, a lot of the dialogue feels natural, um, mm. and, and especially when like you know in Skipper News are discussing things, they they make jokes and quips about things, don't they? There is a there is a moment I I I maybe smart sort of accidental because there is a certain phrase that has become a bit of a joke but it's this but back in uh, 81 it wasn't when somebody looks at somebody else and says in all earnestness there's been a murder ah uh, yes <laughs> Taggart, yeah. Taggart came to mind it, yeah. it was said twice by somebody and James Cosmo says it almost a third time, but he says something like, there's been another killing. So mm. uh, in, in the, there's been a murder in the Scottish accent, bingo, we only get two two lines, <laughs> two squares. But yeah, you're right. I thought it's going to be like Taggart. So I'm glad it's not just me that spotted that. I also quite like all the, um, that nice little scene when they're looking at the body doing the autopsy. And uh, Dr. Gaudry says that little bit about, you know, he brought Fiona into this world. and Exactly, he, the he close-knit community. That's it, and he feels a bit of uh, sort of paternal responsibility. So he's, he's trying, he's kind of uh, sounding sounding Michael out, mm-hmm. as, which, of course, he, he then points out himself. Speak, speaking of Michael, um, this is going back to 
my my previous podcast of the uninvited is that the main character is a professional of some kind gareth mm. and now i know well, that david wiltshire wanted to make the dentist a hero because that's what he did for a living but you know again it's interesting would, would he have had as mm. much weight or validity to the audience if he'd been i don't know a greengrocer but also the the fact that he's a dentist again that gets worked into the plot quite yes. effectively as well i, I think mm. it's quite funny that he he wants dentists to be seen in, in a more heroic light in fiction mm. in general mm. that, that's quite quite amusing but at, at least it, it doesn't end up being completely random it no. manages yeah. to get involved in a, a, a believable way it contributes it's that innocent course up in the thing isn't it like a hitchcock film yeah. and then yeah. he's he's helpful to the case as well because of the teeth thing and his girlfriend's helpful because of the maps and the photographs. It's 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 lucky. It, it contributes, but uh, thankfully, it's not the. He resists that urge to make the vital cue. I mean, I mean, we get a clue with the the dental with that dental mold, but the whole uh, story doesn't hang on a bit of dentistry <laughs> at, at the climax, which only a dentist could carry this out. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, uh, I was going to say one other thing that has probably slightly dated it, it is that in almost every single scene, Inskip is smoking, <laughs> and so <laughs> so is his sergeant. They're smoking at work while they're working, and and also Inskip when he's outside, he, he lights up, you know. <laughs> and I I just kind of forgotten how commonplace smoking was now, it, it was then compared to now. It's interesting. It's true the. Yeah, it's it's true. The amount of sort of casual smoking in this series it, it now uh, leaps out at you. Something else that leapt out to me was the amount of whiskey that gets consumed. <laughs> yes. Well, it is Scotland. <laughs> it, it 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 does become slightly apparent. I mean, there's nothing. There's none of this. Oh, not whilst I'm on duty, obviously, <laughs> on 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 the on the island of in in the D. Because uh, they most it seems it seems to lubricate uh, most uh, conversations. I think the the closing lines of the the entire thing are actually the the two policemen discussing how the lot of a policeman is is a difficult one, whilst yeah. they're both reclining chairs quaffing whiskey. It is right, and I I think they do make an effective double act to the point where I think yeah. uh, I'd have loved to have seen. You know, Inspector Inskip and Sergeant Karch investigating. I could just see him investigating <laughs> ordinary crimes as well. <laughs> yeah, we we talked a lot about the atmospherics, but um, episode four takes a slightly strange turn in that um, suddenly we're in bright sunlight, and it doesn't feel like we've worked towards this. I thought it doesn't feel like it. Oh, it's the dawn at the end of the. Um, or at least it doesn't feel that artistic. And, but suddenly, we're out in broad, sunny daylight. Mm. Uh, I, don't, I don't know if you agree it's it's a problem. Yeah, I think it. it the, the, the last sequence with um, with the Nightmare Man appearing on the golf course with, with the Major seems slightly wrong in, in various ways. It, it is overlit. Uh, and then everything's over incredibly quickly, and it, it doesn't mm -hmm. seem all that difficult to put him out of his misery anyway. So, 
I don't know if if that that comes down to production problems, uh, whether or not they did intend to do that somewhat differently, because it mm-hmm. it is it is less effective than it, it reminds me in that respect of uh, the Doctor Who story, the Leisure Hive, which I think would have been uh, a hell of a lot more effective with the lurking mafia monsters if uh, if they'd have been in shadow, and I think it's it's the same with this. It's part of the the kind of the rules of the horror game. At some point, you've got to show the monster properly. You can you can keep teasing the viewer as they do uh, with little glimpses, but I think I think the audience feels cheated if they don't see the monster by the end. So mm. it has to happen. But I agree. It's so it's weird. I, I I fully agree. I think it's over far too quickly. I think they. If they just pumped a few more bullets into him and he kept on going, uh, as it is, it just seems like someone with a pistol could have ended this uh, story. <laughs> yeah. You know, the episode two. I mean, I know from uh, from the notes that in in the book, uh, it all takes place in a wood at night. Uh, it could well be they felt that was oh that was impractical to do. But it's because the pace and the and the look has been so good up to now, the ending weirdly fumbles the ball. Mm, right, it does feel like it's over a bit too quickly. It's, uh, it still it. looks good. Yeah, mm. monster still looks. It does actually look. You know, he look again. It's tying in with the submarine. It looks practical. It looks believable. You know, he he looks like a pilot of some kind, mm. and he's got those marvelous kind of blank goggles together with the the horse breathing and everything. Mm. So he's actually, I I say he's actually fairly well realized. Uh, mm. I, I I was kind of looking at it with a bit of my in a way my writer's head on and thinking how if it has to be on this golf course. Perhaps if he'd been kind of going around picking off a few soldiers, sort of from behind before he kind of gets to the major. Yep, and of course the the other problem is that he spent three episodes gorily ripping people apart, mm. and then he finishes off the major with a bit of a gentle throttle. Mm. That's another level. I mean, they could, I suppose, in story terms. I don't think they ever quite establish in the way that he's he's dying. That this nightmare man he's slowly dying over the course of the whole of of, of the yeah. whole series. In a way, he's he's been really he's just so strong. He's he just yeah. kept going. I, I love that phrase, a gentle throttle. That's a, <laughs> that's a good phrase. That well, possibly the best way to go. I, I, I was going to say, I uh, I liked the way that when it was revealed that Colonel Howard was really, you know, a Russian and the others were there and it was there to, to cover it up, he wasn't like a bad guy Russian as you would expect in the, the Cold mm. War era. You know, he, he, he was genuinely there, obviously under suspicious circumstances, but he genuinely wanted to help and, and agreed to, to stay on the island after taking the Vodonyoy away to get rid of mm-hmm. the Nightmare Man to solve the problem for the island. And obviously he didn't want to cause an international incident with the, the toxic uh, chemical weapon that, that was in, in the Vodonyoy infecting mm-hmm. the islanders. So he had the, the sort of anti-agent or vaccine, didn't he? Um, mm-hmm. and, 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 you know, it, it was just good that he, he was a good Russian, I suppose. Especially at the time, that was very mm-hmm. much against, against stereotypes. Exactly. I like that. 
Yes, I think James Newark does a good job with uh, with, with him, Colonel mm. Howard. Sorry, I've been calling him Major Howard. In fact, I've demoted the days. Colonel uh, Howard. I, I think he's he's major in the novel. He is. Ah, yeah. that's right. That's what I'm getting. That's, that's but, I'm but getting yeah, uh, I wonder why they changed the rank. But but yeah, they got real uh, Royal Marines in, didn't they? Too. I, I I think that works in in their favour as well because the. I do get distracted sometimes by uh, mm. watching soldiers on film and television who are <laughs> so clearly not soldiers, either in the way mm. they move or the length of the hair or um, yeah. the, the amount of pies they've eaten over the last year. <laughs> uh, yeah. it, it's really nice to see soldiers that actually look like the real deal. Again, mm. that's a Douglas Canfield thing, because when he did Doctor Who, they, they arranged real soldiers to, to help bulk out the unit uh, soldiers in the invasion, and um, d- did they help in Seat of Doom? I can't remember. Or did we only see two two members of the unit? Been a while but, but, but they definitely used the real army in um, in the invasion, and that was a Canfield directed story. Mm, but yeah, they do look effective when they come ashore in the landing rafts. Mm. Episode four does look. Uh... And, and, and like Ian said, they move like soldiers. They act like soldiers. There's a there's a nice little scene of them uh, uh, trotting down the, the streets of the village, and uh, mm. it, it looks really mm. like a couple of instances of other films uh, from previously that uh, it put me in mind of. Yeah, one was the the major or colonel, I should say, um, wandering around clearly knowing more than he ought to, and uh, at times being quite quite terse, and he. He reminded me quite a lot of Christopher Lee in Night of the Big Heat, which, oh. again, is supposedly set on an island which is uh, under the cosh from um, unusual attackers. Mm. And the other thing was the, the camera, the camera trigger and the camera taking photographs of the attack reminded me very much of um, Living Dead at the Manchester Morgue, if you've ever oh. seen it. Do you know, I have seen that, that that is a film I would love to see. Uh, I haven't seen oh, it yet. Yeah, strongly advise it. And a similar sort of thing happens where a photographer gets done in and his camera uh, reveals what he's been done in by, which I think is really effective. It's done in a different way. I'm, I'm not necessarily suggesting that they've nicked the idea, but um, but it did. It immediately reminded me of it, yeah. It's interesting, according to the uh, Andrew Pixley's notes, there was some talk about take, turning it into a film. And uh, mm. I can certainly see it as a film. I think you could easily have transposed it to uh, America if necessary. And uh, another sort of small community somewhere on the coast. I think it would be great as long as uh, it didn't get too big a budget, if you know what I mean. And, and then... Mm. They could over-egg the pudding, really. I think um, the isolated community and, and the, just the hints of, uh, of the, the, the monster, I, th- I think that's great. Uh, there's a kind of a, a well-shot, low-budget film. It, it, it could be fantastic. Yeah, I mean, there is something essentially B-movie about the Nightmare Man, in, in a good way. Yeah. Uh, so, so also, in fact, I shall ask you first, Ian. Uh, would you like to sort of some final thoughts on the the Nightmare Man? I think it's it's inspired by 
a novel that very few people have heard of, which seems a shame in itself. Uh, it's never been repeated and I can't really understand why and therefore people haven't really heard much of the, the TV serial. I think it's uh, it's got its faults, but I think it stands up really well. Um, and at the moment, so over the last year or so, I've been very much enjoying introducing my, my daughter, who's just turned eight, to quite a few of um, the TV and films of yesteryear that obviously uh, try to keep them appropriate with her only being out. But she's, <laughs> she's enjoyed watching old Doctor Who with me. She's enjoyed watching some Universal and early Hammer films. Um, but interestingly enough, she got halfway through this one. It, it did really make her think, oh, I do want to still watch this, but could we leave it for another night before we watch the rest, Daddy? So it, oh. it it's clearly got something which, uh, yeah, it, it still works. And, uh, you know, people always look back and, and say things are dated. But, mm. but uh, it, it's got a lot to offer this. I think it's, it's, it's a great atmosphere. It's a great cast. And it, it, it's really well directed and well scripted. How, how about yourself, John? Apart from having the twist revealed to me in the magazine article from 20 years ago, uh, I still enjoyed it. The, the, the cast was great, the atmosphere was great, you know, they had us in the candle work and, and everything, you know, and, and even with those little minor things like the fog or the, the donio looking a bit cheap uh, and the rushed ending, it's still very enjoyable, very atmospheric and, you know, you kind of felt like they were real people uh, in this weird situation. And, and like you said, it's a shame it's not more, more well known. So how's it been publishing your first book, Ian? Very exciting, it has to be said. Um, but also at times it was a bit of a, a war of attrition to get it completed. It took about two years, uh, what with a day job as well. Um, but I thoroughly enjoyed it. Always been a massive fan of Jenny Agatha, so it was um, it was very much a labour of love to uh, spend two years watching all of the films. Sixty plus, sixty plus of them. So uh, it took a lot of my time, but it was uh, yeah, it was a great <laughs> book. It, it's a splendid looking book, I have to say. It's uh, it's got it's it's a, a, a lot of uh, rare photographs that you've managed to uncover, and some quite unusual films I'd never heard of. Were there any films that really surprised you? The thing that surprised me more than anything was the way in which she was able to shift from one distinct persona to another we very much see her as uh, an English rose but at the same time there's very much that sort of um, sex symbol element as well and yet I think more than any other actress I can think of she seemed to just keep skipping from one to the other uh, without it mm. bothering anybody whatsoever so we were going from mm. the first couple of films which were very much uh, cute child roles and then straight into things like I Start Counting and Walkabout uh, and in between those two being released you've got the railway children um, <laughs> very diverse and uh, it, it always fascinated me that she managed to, to get away with that Do you have any, has it inspired you? Have you got any more books uh, in, in the pipeline that you can talk about? Uh, yeah, well the thing is I, I do work quite closely with Eric McNaughton who um, publishes the We Belong Dead magazine and, and releases a lot of books about horror films. 
uh, I contribute to a lot of those uh, and he was kind enough to support me on this first solo release and it has gone well um, there are still books available should anybody wish to search them out but uh, it's sold well um, it looks like I'll be going solo again on the films of Robert Shaw sometime in the uh, near future mm. we'll be looking at uh, Jaws and the Deep and Force 10 from Navarone um, and so on. So, yeah, I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, he's, he's an absolutely brilliant actor. I mean, that, that should be that should be a, a really interesting project, that one. That's yeah, and especially as he's quite, he was quite local as well, wasn't he? Mm. Uh, to, uh, that, to those of us that live in the, uh, in the northwest. So I'm looking forward to that. Well, I think it only remains for me to say thank you very much to Ian and John for joining me to talk about The Nightmare Man. Thank you very much. Thoroughly enjoyed it. Thank you for, for having me. Great stuff. Well, thank you. I've enjoyed it immensely too. I hope you have listening at home and look forward to talking to you again soon. Goodbye for now. That was Very British Futures, hosted by Gareth Preston, with guests Ian Taylor and John Isles. Music by Chattery Art. You can hear more of his work at chattryart.bandcamp.com. Follow us on Twitter at FuturesVery, and for more reviews and news, visit garethpreston.blog. Next time, Out of the Unknown.